This is They Create Worlds 120, The Entire Video Game Industry, Part 3. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hey, hello. Well, Alex, this has been a whirlwind of a live stream recording, and we're already on our third episode, but I think I kind of lost my way as to where we are. We left off with the crash. We've basically covered what my first book covers at this point in the first two episodes, obviously at a high level and obviously leaving a lot of stuff out here and there. Of course, this whole podcast is about the history of video games, so if there's anything that we talked about you want more information on, there's a decent chance that we've done a podcast that covers it. Really, at this point, you could just go and look at all 120 episodes we have available for you. That's right. Now we're going to push ahead into the uncharted territory of the book that I probably should be writing right now and I'm not because I'm talking to all of you people. Oh, no. Obviously, the crash was a very transformative moment for the entire industry. And even though it was a North American phenomenon, even though it was a largely console-based phenomenon with the arcade going through its own point-op, going through its own down cycle at roughly the same time, it had broad impact across the entire world and across all aspects of video games. There really wasn't a video game industry at this point. What you had was you had a console industry that was centered in the United States, was largely based around the products of Atari, Mattel, and Magnavox, with Coleco coming in near the very end. You had a coin-op industry that was an international industry, where the manufacturing was centered in the United States, mostly in Chicago with some stuff in California like Atari. They were providing coin-operated amusement product throughout the entire developed world and even parts of the third world. They played off of each other, they had synergy with each other, but they were really on separate cycles, they were on their own separate thing. Coin-operated amusement, it was location-based. In the United States, at least, it was very much teenagers as the primary driver of that. The home console thing, this was still primarily caught up in the toy industry. I mean, there was question about what you would call that product category. Is it a toy aimed at children? Is it a consumer electronic aimed at families? Is it, in fact, its own thing? I mean, at the time, the answer was really no. It's got to be part of something else, but that's hanging out there. Is it a rec room product that you put in sporting goods? That was still happening in some places. There were still some places doing sporting goods. It was definitely something that was either geared towards a family audience, not that families were necessarily really playing video games together, but the marketing was centered around the family. It was geared towards a family audience, and it was geared towards children. Six to 12-year-old, maybe six to 14-year-old children. This was a primarily American phenomenon, the console industry at this time. The Japanese had a period of Pong, where the Pong clones were big from 77 to 79, roughly. The dedicated consoles, they were a little behind America. But then after that, they really went into the electronic handhelds and electronic tabletop games. 
They had imports of American product, but the imports were expensive. Imports in Japan always suffer from the not invented here uh, phenomenon anyway. It was really a vibrant electronic handheld and electronic tabletop market. There were conversions of coin-operated games being done, but they were being done on tabletop with very glowy vacuum fluorescent displays and other cool stuff like that. Then in Europe, you had a video game console market as well that was kind of geared towards the same demographic. There was a combination of homegrown and imported product. Of course, again, the imported product from the United States was very expensive. In Europe, of course, it's often treated in shorthand monolithically, and we don't have time, despite what some people in chat may have tried to promise on our behalf, (laughs) to go through every European country specifically. So unfortunately, we'll have to treat it somewhat monolithically too. But it's really, you know, it's a diverse continent with very different countries, with very different tastes, and very different levels of sophistication in distribution and whatnot as well. The European market in this early period, really the main parts of it were Britain and Germany. The only reason for that really is that they had the best and most sophisticated distribution structures to big box retailers. The high street shops in Britain embraced the whole technology thing pretty readily, places like W.H. Smith's and Boots and whatnot. Germany also had department stores and other sophistication. France, as a counterexample, even though France was a large market in terms of number of people, it was still very mom and pop in its distribution. So that just makes it that much harder to get mass market distribution. When you get down to uh, the Mediterranean part of the world, in this early period, and I'm talking 1970s now, he had the additional challenge that there actually hadn't been nearly as much television adoption in households as there were in some of the more economically powerful European countries. Of course, the Dutch, shout out there, also had a very big role to play. I wish we did know more about what Philips was doing. I really do, because I'd cover it if I knew. Philips, of course, did own Magnavox. They bought them in September 1974, so the Original Magnavox Odyssey was not put out by Philips, but all of the other Magnavox products that we talk about were, in fact, put out when they were a subsidiary of Philips. And in fact, then in 1981, Magnavox goes away as a division. It just becomes North American Philips, though they still use the Magnavox brand name. I mean, it's still the Magnavox Odyssey 2, not the North American Philips Odyssey 2, which would just be silly. They also bought the chip company Signetics. Signetics was very big. There was kind of a cottage industry in Europe. Because the sophisticated American programmables were really too expensive once you got both imports and the dreaded VAT, value-added tax, involved in the equation, there was a hunger for video game product, but it had to be cheaper. It had to be a little simpler. So they kind of carried on the torch from where the dedicated Pong market left off. They did go to programmable systems, But rather than, like in the United States, where Atari and Mattel and those kind of companies just take over the whole thing, you still had a vibrant business with the Hong Kong companies, with the import-export companies. So you had a series of systems that were basically all based on the same chipset, which was often a Signetics chipset. This is why Philips was really a big part of what was going on in Europe, because they owned Signetics. And these Signetic chipsets would be used by various companies around the world. Hong Kong manufacturers, Hanamex, which was Australian, was also doing this, even a few companies in the United States. In Germany, there was the company Interton that became very big in this. 
that company actually still exists today. They're a hearing aid company. That was always kind of their primary thing, but they got into video games here. So you had this kind of mix of a few homegrown things, particularly in Britain and Germany, a lot of stuff coming in from other countries, and then a lot of it being rebranded in the United Kingdom. I don't think the markets were ever very big for this stuff. I mean, I don't have good figures, and I readily admit I don't have good figures. That's kind of where the home market was in Europe. It was somewhat fragmented. It was based on some differing standards of technology that, on the whole, were maybe not quite as sophisticated what was going on in America. But for a more cost-conscious Europe, it worked better. That's the console market. And then you had this emerging home computer market. It was still very much in its infancy when this crash thing occurred. There was a definitive shift that was caused by the crash, and I'm talking now about the United States. Before the crash, there was a move to bring computers down at the same time consoles are coming up until you kind of had the singularity and you had the home computer that was a computer and more expensive than a console, but also had a cartridge slot to make the game playing easy. Even back then, they were really realizing that the whole blinking cursor thing was a little intimidating and a little inaccessible to uh, the average person where you have no prompt but a blinking cursor and you have to tell the computer what to do. The home computers were starting to borrow from the console industry and have cartridges and cartridge slots so you could bypass all that nonsense if you didn't want to, while at the same time staying in tune with what more sophisticated users would also want to do with disk drives and whatnot as well. In Europe, the home computer market was very different because the crash kind of creates a bifurcation here. I mean, there's also always a bifurcation in terms of the product, but now there's a bifurcation in terms of the audience. The home computer in the United States, which is defined by analysts economically as the under $600 crowd, so technically the Apple II wasn't really a home computer. It was follow-ons like the Commodore stuff, like the VIC-20 and the C64 the stuff Radio Shack was doing, like the TRS-80 and the TRS Color Computer and whatnot, were really the home computer set, the under $600 crowd. That was trying to appeal broadly. It was trying to appeal broadly to all ages pre-crash. Post-crash, when the cartridge thing just went away, there was kind of a refocusing on an older user, on a more sophisticated user, and on that user that in the mainframe tradition, in the college tradition, is really more interested in sedate gameplay, finicky systems, not finicky systems in terms of computers that don't work, although there were plenty of those, but fiddly systems is what I mean to say in terms of lots of data and statistics and menu options to sink your teeth into. Yes, we have a request for the inflation calculator. I mean, we've had it in the other two episodes, so it has to be in the third one. That under $600 thing, we're, we're talking really in the 83, 84 period. So let's say this 1983, you bought a computer for 600 Now there were computers available cheaper than that too, but that was the upper capstone. Uh, that's a $1,500 computer. That's a lot. Yep. In today's standard. You know, there were computers going for as little as $99 as things developed, which we'll talk about in a second. That's the upper end of what we're looking at here. The market there becomes an older user, a slightly more sophisticated user, and somebody with a little more spending power, obviously. That stuff that came out of the mainframe tradition, that stuff like RPGs, like adventure games, text adventure games at first, later moving on to graphics, military simulations. The wargaming side of it was always very niche. Vehicle simulations, flight simulators and uh, tank simulators and that kind of thing. 
These are the kind of games that start to predominate in the United States. That isn't to say that there weren't any Twitch action games, because there were. And that's not to say that there weren't young people that had computers. I still have a Commodore 64 over there. Yes. But you definitely see a shift in the way that U.S. market's going. The British market was very different. Now we are going to finally talk about the British experience a little bit. The thing that made Britain stand out in terms of microcomputing, and part of the reason why they ended up being one of the more dominant forces in the European computer market, just in the sense, obviously, there were local companies in in Spain and France and Germany and the Nordic uh, countries, the Benelux. I mean, you have a smattering of companies everywhere, but the British machine kind of tended to dominate the European market. You had a transition within the country itself. England, the United Kingdom had gone through a long period of hardship, of recession, of dwindling resources, and of competition for how to allocate the remaining resources and real tension between labor unions and government. You had a series of flip-flopping prime ministers between the two major parties conservative and labor, but administrations were often scandal-ridden and ineffective, and the unions didn't like the labor (laughs) uh, administrations any more than they liked the Tory administrations, quite frankly. There was a, a sense of decline in Britain. And then Margaret Thatcher was elected. And believe me, what we're about to talk about here is not an embrace of Thatcherism or an embrace of the politics surrounding Thatcherism, just looked at very narrowly through the lens of what it meant for the computer industry and the computer game industry in the United Kingdom, is that Margaret Thatcher's message was very much about how they needed to create a new Britain, a revitalized Britain, and a strong Britain once again. Whatever you think of her methods to try to achieve that, and there's certainly a lot to say about that. One thing that she did feel was that computers and computing was a vehicle through which Britain could accomplish some of her goals. There was a real national push and a push from the national government to get computer training into schools and to get young British people using computers. Whether or not that was truly successful or not is immaterial to what we're talking about here. What that did is it created an environment where basically parents were very encouraged to get computers for their children, to buy computers for the home for their children. There was a real feeling that they would be left behind in the New Britain if they didn't have them. You see an adoption of home computers at a rate in Britain that is really exceptional when compared to any place else in the world, including the United States. Of course, this wouldn't have been possible if you didn't have good old Uncle Clive there, who was already a master of purveying cheap and sometimes very dodgy. They could be cheap in both senses of the word. Electronics to the British people. He'd been doing that since the 60s. He'd been in custom stereo components and circuits. He'd moved into televisions. He was the epitome of Douglas Adams' statement about being so astoundingly primitive that uh, he thought digital watches were a neat idea. You can look up the black watch outside the context of this podcast and see what I mean about that. He really was a believer in 
cheap mass market electronics and figuring out ways to get electronics to people that were affordable in a place that was as cost conscious as Britain was in the 70s and early 80s. He had his engineers do a series of computers. He started with a computer kit, the Mark 14, with, at his time, his friend Chris Curry. That didn't last. You can watch the movie Micromen to see more. Everything that looks like it's too ridiculous to have actually happened in that movie actually happened. (laughs) (laughs) I said to myself, there's no way that they really got into a public brawl with each other in a pub after a trade show. And then I went and looked it up on the internet. Yeah, they really did get into a brawl at a pub. (laughs) (laughs) It really happened. Why would you get into a brawl in a pub? That's not stereotypical to every D&D game ever. (laughs) They had a history, a history that we can't go into here, but it's worth an episode sometime. Just not this episode. No time. Ooh, another one for the list. Uh Uh-huh. Then Chris Curry went off with his Cambridge friends. Cambridge has always been the math and science center. Oxford is where you go for the humanities. Cambridge is where you go for the sciences and mathematics. He went off with his Cambridge friends and created his own computer company. So Chris Curry and his company, Acorn actually, created the computer that became the standard in the British school system, the BBC Micro. But it was way too expensive for most people. So Clive Sinclair and his engineers, because Clive Sinclair was not the one designing these, Sinclair, or Sir Clive, if you prefer, had his engineers come up with the ZX80, then the ZX81, and then the ZX Spectrum. These were relatively primitive computers, especially the first two. The ZX80 didn't have enough memory to type and display at the same time, so when you pressed a key, the screen went blank while it processed it. But these were affordable computers. These were computers that the British people could get into their homes. When you had the entire governmental apparatus of Britain, and remember, in a European country like that, The government apparatus at that time is very different from the American apparatus. It's not just Thatcher or or one of our cabinet ministers going on television to say, you should have computers. It's also the BBC, which is government-owned, the BBC Television Network, encouraging you through its programming, through documentaries and other means, to get in on computers. It's also the schools in Britain, unlike in the United States, there's a national school system. So it's also the entire school apparatus of the entire country telling people, hey, you should all have computers. That was a pretty big poll. So little Johnny wanted a computer to play games. There were arcade games in Britain, but the culture is a little different there. Big cities had some arcades. My understanding, of course, I'm not from there, but my understanding is a lot of the arcade activity in Britain was at the seaside resorts. The British are a fanatical holiday people. They love going on holiday. For those that couldn't afford necessarily a fancy holiday someplace, what the summer holiday season meant in Britain is that you went to the coast. You went to Brighton and Bournemouth and all of these other places along the coast, the ocean resorts of Britain, to have a nice beach holiday, a nice summer holiday. All of these resorts would have arcades and would have the latest arcade games. That was the primary exposure for a lot of British youngsters when it came to video games, was doing it that way. There was certainly a demand to have a computer in the home and to be able to do that full time. If little Johnny is saying, I want this computer that costs 99 pounds, that's a big expense for a working class British household. It's like, well, what do you want it for? I want it to play games. Well, that's not going to fly. They've been hearing on the telly 
about how computers are important. So it's like, oh, yes, we have to get this computer. It's not that expensive in the grand scheme of life. You know, don't want them left behind. All right, pop on down, local store, get a micro. But you, sir, you need the most impressive computer that we can possibly provide you right there at the store. You see here, this comes with a monitor, which normally would cost you £30, but this one will come with just £50 of quality entertainment for you, the consumer of this microcomputer. So please, by all means, go forth and have fun with your microcomputer. Make me some video games so that I can sell them for you. (laughs) Something like that. As I said, too, there was adoption by the high street shops. In America, we refer to Main Street USA. The British equivalent is High Street. The main high street retailers really got in on this as well. Computers were readily available, readily findable. You didn't have to go to special computer shops necessarily to find them, though, of course, those did exist as well. So they were readily available. They were relatively cheap considering what you got. And there was a perceived value in education that was being perpetuated from the highest level of government on down. That's why you got this so-called bedroom coder culture in the United Kingdom. There were absolutely teenage prodigies and bedroom coders in the United States. Exposure to computing in the United States in these early formative days was far more often at the university level. You know, there was some exposure to time-sharing systems in some of the fancier high schools or the more well-off high schools, but it was often something that you came to in college at the same time you were discovering all these other crazy things like D&D and all of that. That kind of influenced the way it went. If you look at the early companies in the United States, you either had people that were fresh out of college, that were exposed to computers in college. You had young professionals like Doug Carlston, who was a lawyer, who decided to have a career change. And because he was a lawyer, had the means to get himself a computer. Even Programma was founded by an accountant. That's kind of the sectors of society where you were getting a lot of the programmers. In the United Kingdom, a lot of the programming was being done on these these cheap little machines where discovery was going on in the bedroom at home rather than a slightly older set. You had a situation that was actually very similar to the early American software experience, except that the American experience was very quickly overtaken by this tech entrepreneur model where you had somebody who was good at business and good at game design, like get together and found a company. So Ken and Roberta Williams founding Online Systems, Richard and Robert Garriott founding Origin, the Suratech family and Robert Woodhead getting together to found Suratech. You know, that's kind of where the market went because everyone was a little bit older. In the UK, because things were a little younger, you stayed in that earlier phase. You had these catch-all companies, these marketing companies that would look for software, which would solicit software and pay a royalty basis, and then they'd just gather all the games that they could and then release them. It's a smaller country, which made that easier to do. There would be microcomputer fairs. There would be magazines and advertisements for solicitation. So you might hand your software to someone at a microcomputer fair, or you might solicit based on a magazine ad. You'd write in, and they'd write back and say, uh, yeah, we loved your game. Here's some money for it. Obviously, some of these companies would go on to be successful and well-known. Others could be kind of shady and very fly-by-night and kind of cheat the people sending them stuff. It was kind of very Wild West. It was certainly cutthroat competition. There were 
lots and lots of little companies, and in the early days of it, very little consolidation. It's a bit more of a fragmented experience in that sense. It's entirely cassette-based. This just cuts down to the cost of disk drives, being very expensive, Britain having to be a little more cost-conscious, the average British consumer, so that was just a, a bit too much. So you have this starting to develop in the early 1980s. It actually comes back and circles back around to the United States via Commodore. We're not going to go into the whole history of Commodore, but Jack Trammell, co-founder of Commodore and its uh, CEO, there are two things that Jack Trammell really liked. Copying what other people are doing and copying what other people are doing cheaper than they're doing it. The history of Commodore is really a history of following in the footsteps of what other people are doing. Now, the pet was a little more forward-looking because that was started at Moss Technology before they bought Moss. So, you know, they got on board early. Most of the time, what Jack Trammell would do is he would see another product out there and basically say, build me one of those, but cheaper. This is kind of what happened with the thing going on in Britain. He actually saw what was going on. He had had his people trying to build something that was cheaper than the Apple II. It never came out, but they were working on a build a cheaper Apple II. Then he learned about what was going on in Britain because Commodore had a very strong international presence. In fact, it became much more well-known and respected in Germany and Britain than it ever was in the United States. In fact, in Germany, you would mention Commodore in the same breath as you would mention IBM. It's kind of crazy. It was a major thing. It really was a major thing. He learned about what was going on in Britain. He was like, that's what we need to do. At this time, I think it was the Z, it was either the ZX80 or the ZX81 that was out. He saw one of those two computers and was like, yes, like that. Cheap, accessible computers that anyone can buy. So the engineers at Commodore created the VIC-20 at that point. The VIC-20 was very much a landmark in this period of merging the computer industry and the video game industry, because in many ways it was a video game. The VIC chip in there was a very capable graphics chip of the time as a video game kind of thing. It was a cartridge-based computer, and it was aimed at a more mass-market audience. The VIC-20, it started out at like $199, but by the end of its run, it was down to $99 because there was kind of a price war. It was very bloody and very complicated. The price war is not something we will get into in detail right now other than to say that it happened. That's actually part of how the home computer market in the United States also got tied up in this mess of the video game crash because computers were coming closer and closer to video game systems, the VIC-20 being the best example of that. And the VIC-20 sold 800,000 units in its first year and uh, went over a million in its second year. It was the first computer, as far as we know, with our limited sales info to reach a million in sales. Apple II didn't reach a million in sales until 1983, so it was it was behind the VIC-20, which made it there in 82. It was driving mass market. Of course, uh, Jack Trammell eventually made the decision to get his computers into the mass market retailers, burning every bridge with specialty computer stores that he could in the process. He didn't care. It was driving mass market acceptance, and because it was cartridge-based, it was getting the computer game companies somewhat interested in the cartridge market as well. The cartridge market doesn't only mean consoles, it also means these low-level home computers. That price war kind of gutted the industry at the same time that the crash was gutting the video game industry. They were on slightly different cycles. The price war was more into 83 and 84, by which time the video game thing was already bottoming out. 
this kind of dual disaster also played a role. I mean, Sierra barely survived the period, for instance, because they were getting into cartridges at just the wrong time. The crash thing was devastating everywhere. And in the places it wasn't devastating, like, say, Japan, it still had an effect because it created great opportunity. That kind of takes us into our next little bit here. How do these industries change after the crash? Well, there are a few things that go on. The arcade industry, the coin-op industry, is completely transformed. They realize after the crash of their market, the arcade companies do, that this whole full-sized game thing is completely untenable. You can't release an arcade cabinet for $2,500, and then three months later, release another arcade cabinet for $2,500, three months later, another one, while all of your competitors are doing it at the same time, and expect distributors and operators to be able to keep up with any of that. They realize that they're going to have to do some standardization in cabinets, in wiring harnesses, in control schemes, and they're going to have to go to a kit system. Now, we did a whole episode on this, picking up the pieces after the crash. We won't go in detail, but basically the idea is that rather than selling someone a full cabinet every time, you sell them a circuit board that wires into a standard cabinet, you give them new side art and marquee art for that cabinet, and voila, you have a new game. This has advantages and disadvantages. The advantage is the cost far and away. The advantage is the cost. The disadvantage is that it does mean that games have less variety. They become more homogenized. There was a big tradition of custom controllers, particularly an Atari product in the golden age. The move to kits and to standard wiring harnesses really gets you into that one joystick, two button mentality that persists throughout most of the 1980s. And if your game can't do one joystick and two buttons, or if you're being really outlandish, maybe up to four buttons, then it's not a game concept you can do. The standardization was furthered, particularly in Japan, where they introduced the so-called JAMA standard, JAMA being the new trade organization that replaced the JAA, Japanese Amusement Machine Manufacturing Association. They came up with a standard wiring harness, essentially, a standard cabinet and a standard wiring harness, so that basically any JAMA member, which of course all of the Japanese coin-op companies were, any board from any JAMA member was going to fit into any JAMA cabinet. So that really homogenized especially the Japanese output in this time period. It also leads to the greater adoption of system hardware. System hardware was not new after the crash. Dave Nutting Associates really created the first system hardware. Jeff Fredrickson was really a visionary in a lot of ways with a lot of the early stuff he did. They didn't just have the first microprocessor-driven video game, or at least very close to the first. There's some edge cases. And they didn't just have one of the first bitmapped screens in a video game. They also had what was the first real system hardware, which is instead of making a custom game hardware for every game you make and then maybe using it in one or two similar games to try to get your money back, you actually create a standard chipset where you have not just your microprocessor, but your standard graphics chip, your standard sound chip, your standard everything and all you're doing is swapping out ROM or maybe sticking a little more RAM on here or there, but basically leaving that basic system alone and using it for all your games for a period of two or three years, four years, before Moore's Law dictates that you need to update your hardware again. All the big players, not just in Japan, but also in the United States, go to system hardware in this time period as well. 
Full model releases don't go away entirely, but a lot of games come out as either full releases or kits. Everything just about is being done on a system hardware of some kind. Japan has some particular challenges as well in this time period in coin-op. Even though the Great Crash didn't affect them, Japan had its own problem with coin-op in this time period. I mentioned in a previous episode, of course, in this uh, cycle that game centers were open 24-7. This was considered very detrimental for the youth and for the corruption of the youth. After the Space Invaders boon happened, after the Invader craze, they did cut back on when young people could be in game centers. But they didn't actually go after the 24-7 nature of game centers themselves. In 1984, the government decides to step in. They've gotten more and more concerned about this whole video game, this whole game center thing. They actually restrict hours of operations for game centers so they can no longer be 24-7 operations anymore. This is a huge, huge blow to game centers and to Japanese manufacturers, who we have to remember are also operators. So they're getting a lot of income not only from selling their game cabinets, but by running these 24-7 game centers as well. So that caused a massive shift The big three, Sega, Namco, and Taito, had to really think about what they were doing. They had to spruce up the game centers they had. They had to kind of consolidate. They had to make sure that only their biggest and best game centers were in operation. Taito, in particular, became very well known for its scrap and build policy, where they were closing small game centers and renovating larger game centers in order to uh, make them more appealing. This is also why you get the push to need more impressive product to attract clientele into game centers as well. One of the other trends in arcade games in the 1980s is, of course, the so-called Taikan or full-motion cabinets, pioneered primarily by Sega and by Yu Suzuki, who is the Miyamoto of coin-op games in a lot of ways. He and his team did Hang On and Space Harrier and OutRun. They were doing these full-motion cabinets, force feedback controls, Big screens, fast cars, loose women. Wait. Outrun. You're cruising around a Ferrari uh, Testarossa with your best girly at your side. You know, that kind of thing. Just creating this kind of immersive experience. You know, like Outrun, for instance, it's not even a race, really. I mean, yeah, you're timed, but it's more about the pure act of driving than it is about racing. You have a game center culture in Japan that's changing, consolidating a little, and is both getting more homogenous. At the same time, they're also starting to put out a few of these big full motion games that obviously are not homogenous, but serve to also be a a big part of things. The full motion games are also popular elsewhere. I mean, they're popular in Europe. They're popular in the U.S. I think those locations had fewer locations that could house them, especially the United States, where street locations like convenience stores were actually still a very big part of the business. The other thing that's going on here is you're seeing a shift in the way arcade games, coin-operated games, are played. So you had the score chasing in the Golden Age, and that was really a predominant part of what was going on. They tried to pivot from score chasing into LaserDisc. That was a brief ad that didn't work out, so just go listen to our Laser Craze episode if you care about that. Not mentioning it again. (laughs) But what was kind of starting to take effect is you had a gradual lengthening of games. 
There are a few reasons for this, I think. One of them is just that as the hardware gets more sophisticated and memory gets cheaper, you can have more game. I mean, that's just a fact. I also think some of the lengthening started to go on, quite frankly, to combat piracy and to combat clones. A good example of this is Scramble from Konami, which was a 1981 game. Scramble was one of the earliest games that had multiple stages. Scramble was mercilessly pirated in Japan. The Yakuza got involved. There was even a clan war, I think. I mean, it was really bad. Wow, I didn't realize it was a clan war. Oh, yeah. Someday, maybe someone, and it won't be me in all seriousness, it would have to be somebody that's very in tune with not just Japanese culture, but Japanese organized crime culture. The Yakuza are intimately connected with the rise of coin-operated amusements and coin-operated video games in Japan. I couldn't even begin to tell you what that history is. It's an unwritten history, but it's there. Almost every single Japanese coin-op company of any size had some level of connection to the Yakuza at some point in their existence. If I disappear after the stream, you'll know why. I don't have many details. You only get a little bit here, a little bit there. But one thing that's definitely true is it looks like scramble cloning and Konami's attempts to stop it may have actually touched off a clan war <laughs> between two competing Yakuza clans. Uh-oh. That may have happened. The point I'm making here is not about the gangsters, but it's about Konami rushed a revised version of Scramble into production to combat this fact called Super Cobra. And they made Super Cobra even longer. Because it was so long, they included the option to continue from the point of death by inserting another coin. This was one of the very first games to do that. Vanguard from SNK came out about the same time, also did it. Tempest had a buy-in system, but Tempest came a little later than these other two games from Atari. But their lengthening games... In part, I think, to hold interest and to make it harder for other companies to copy them. I don't think it's an accident that Super Cobra was twice as long as Scramble. I think they figured that if they made the game longer, then it would be harder for someone else to steal it. That's speculation. I think that played a role. But as the games got longer, they didn't want people to have to start from the beginning, and so they gave you the option to continue. There was not much of that before the crash, because at that time games were still very much based on score chasing and just recycling content. Play the level, play the level harder, play the level harder, and the game just gets harder as you clear waves until it finally comes so hard you can't do it anymore. We start to see a change on that after the crash. One of the big moves starting towards that, even though it also cycled on a loop, it didn't have an end, was the game Xevious. We've talked about that before, but Xevious is really influential in Japanese game development as kind of the foundation of the shoot 'em up genre, even though Scramble was before it and all of that. The reason I want to bring it up here is because it's a good example of something new that is going on in Japanese game development that would permeate games going forward. We didn't talk about Star Wars in the context of Space Invaders, even though we could have, because one of the reasons that Nishikata went to a space theme is because Star Wars was coming out and was a big hit. Star Wars had a profound impact on popular culture everywhere. Japan was one of the places where it, it had a profound impact on popular culture. It was partially responsible for a new renaissance and a new resurgence in anime, particularly 
anime with a space theme and with a uh, kind of space opera theme. Space Battleship Yamato predates Star Wars. The original does. But it was relaunched with a new movie not long after Star Wars came out. Mobile Suit Gundam started not long after Star Wars came out. It's impossible not to draw a link between the new fad and the new craze for space operas and the revitalization and expansion of space opera style anime in Japan. Anime was becoming very big in this time period. One of the things that Masanobu Endo has said, the creator of Xebius, is that when he created Xebius, he wanted to create a game for the anime generation. What he meant by that is he felt it was time that video games, that coin-operated games, encompass a complete worldview, a complete setting, a complete and coherent presentation. There's actually a Japanese term for this that can't be perfectly translated. And I know I can't perfectly pronounce it. It's essentially Sekaiken, S-E-K-A-I-K-A-N. So sorry if I completely butchered that. Someone in chat will tell me soon if I did. The concept of Sekaiken is a concept of perspective or worldview. It's the idea that all of the details that you put into a project, even if individually they don't seem significant, They cohere together and create a bigger whole and create a sense of realism and a sense of a real universe. When he says creating a game for the anime generation, what he's really saying is creating something that is a complete presentation package that coheres together and creates a world or a setting that feels believable within its own context. Now, you can take that too far. Obviously, in coin-operated games, you don't have too much opportunity to do that. But what it does mean is it's a shift towards making sure that everything you create has a purpose and has a care to it and fits in the world you're trying to create. And part of what made Xevious appeal to Japanese audiences was this sense of a fully formed universe similar to the anime that were being enjoyed at the same time. You see more and more of that in Japanese game design. You see an emphasis on creating worlds, creating levels, creating stories, creating progression, creating endings even, that I think is very influenced by Japanese visual culture generally and anime culture specifically. Another thing that you see happen here that comes from the American side of things that we just talked about recently in our Atari Games episode is the gauntlet comes along from Ed Log at Atari. Because with Gauntlet, as we talked about in that episode, First of all, the arcades are in trouble. Coin ops in trouble. We have to increase coin drop. What's a way to increase coin drop? Let's let multiple people play the game at once. Okay, that's great, but we've done multiplayer games before. We did Tank 8. If two people come up in the machine and decide to play, then they play their game and no one else can join until their game is over. So even though it has eight people that can be on the machine at one time, a lot of that machine is still sitting idle for a lot of the time. Gauntlet, which brought the D&D experience... D&D, it always comes back to D&D, into coin-op. It always does. It brings the D&D experience into coin-op. He figures multiplayer makes sense in that context. Let's let people come in at any time, drop in at any time, play at any time. So if one person's playing or two people are playing and somebody else comes up, they can just join the game right then and there. They can put one quarter in. They can put five quarters in to pre-buy in future game time. So you have a merging of these two ideas. 
it's not that Xevious is the only game that was paying attention to worldview, but just as a short form for what we're discussing here, you kind of have this Xevious idea of Sakaiken coming in from the Japanese. You have this economic idea coming in from Medlog and from Gauntlet. When you get a merger of that, what you get is a new coin-op paradigm that instead of being based on score chasing, is based on creating games that have lots of levels, a high enough level of difficulty that you're going to have to spend a lot of quarters getting through, but then give you the ability to buy as many lives as you want, buy as much energy as you want, buy as much health as you want at any time that you want using your quarters, then for anyone else to see you playing the game and hop on and play the game as well. That kind of gives you the framework. Now, where do the themes come from? Well, the themes come very much out of 1980s American culture. You have the shoot-em-ups that are definitely coming out of that Star Wars tradition, but the other kinds of games that are really big in the arcade are the run-and-guns and especially the beat-em-ups. In the United States, at least, the beat-em-ups were really where it's at. Double Dragon, Final Fight, etc. In the 80s in the United States, there was a real move towards America is back. It's morning. America. Yay! Where we suffered the humiliation of the Vietnam War, we suffered the economic turmoil of hyperinflation and recession. Now America's back, baby, and we're back on the world stage, and we're the greatest nation in the world again, and our military's the greatest in the world. Rah, rah, rah. The uh, action cinema of the time reflected that. You had all of these movies with these big, muscly heroes, your Stallones and your Schwarzeneggers, they're reaffirming American dominance and American superiority, oftentimes in the case of like the later Rambo movies and the, the, the Chuck Norris missing in action movies and whatnot. You have the action heroes going back to Vietnam to avenge the war by getting a nice victory over those commie bastards there. So that was kind of this hyper-amped up rah-rah culture that was pervading during the Reagan years, for better or for worse. The uh, coin-operated games of the time reflected that same activity that was going on in the motion picture world. You had the run and guns. Ikari Warriors from SNK, I mean, the designer said, yeah, I mean, it was Rambo, duh. You know, you had Contra and all of these run and guns. So many run and guns. So many Russian attack. There's another one, good one. Yes, and Russian attack is another one. This was also the period of what's considered the golden age of Hong Kong cinema. Of course, Bruce Lee had created a kung fu flick craze back in the 1970s. But in general, other than the Bruce Lee flicks themselves, that didn't necessarily take hold worldwide at that time. In the 80s, you had a new wave of performers and filmmakers like Jackie Chan and John Woo that were creating a new kind of Hong Kong cinema that combined Western cinematic conventions with Eastern kung fu or martial arts flick sensibilities to create a new kinetic form of Hong Kong action flick that was very, very, very influential in this time period. That's what you really see in the beat-em-ups. I mean, Double Dragon, which is, of course, the seminal beat-em-up, Yoshihisa Kishimoto, the creator of that game, was a humongous Bruce Lee fan. The reason that it's called Double Dragon and why the characters are Billy and Jimmy Lee is the Lee comes from Bruce Lee and the dragon comes from Enter the Dragon and it's Double Dragon because there's two of them. Makes sense. That's a big thing. The game Kung Fu, which is more primitive than Double Dragon, but was one of the earlier beat-em-ups, 
the original in Japan, that was actually a licensed game. It was actually called Spartan X in Japan and was based on a Jackie Chan movie of the time. So these are kind of the trends that are going on. So you're having games of long levels, lots of enemies, buy-in to continue, mostly based on 1980s American action tropes. It's all kit hardware, it's all system hardware, controls are more homogenized. You do still have some more interesting things out on the margins. We don't have time for the margins. We don't even have time for the things that aren't on the margins. But we definitely don't have time for the margins. That's kind of where the trend is going in the arcade at this period of time. We talked a little bit about where the trend is going in home computers in the United States. In Britain, where the trend is going is it is entirely based on what is going on in the arcade. Just about everything there is an action game of some kind. We did talk about in our arcade adventure episode that one unique twist of that experience is that they took the Donkey Kong Minor 2049er platform trend, and we'll talk about platformers more in a second, and created the arcade adventure where you're mixing action with item collection and light puzzle solving. So they have that going on. Shooters are also very popular. Racing games are popular. Outrun in conversion is a humongous hit in Europe, in the United Kingdom especially. In the United States, you're getting the move into kind of a real computer game business. The early stuff, even after you were getting professional distribution in place, was really kind of amateurish, maybe too harsh a word. But a lot of times it was programmers or friends of programmers that were like, well, let's found a little company. And then computer games get big and then the little company becomes a big company. You know, the business people in charge are not always necessarily great business people. Some of them end up having somewhat of a knack for it, like Ken Williams at Sierra. But it's very ad hoc. This period is when you see the true move towards a computer game industry. It's really driven by the newcomer electronic arts. We've done a ton of episodes on electronic arts, so we don't want to dwell on them here. But we have to discuss how electronic arts, and to a lesser extent Activision, changed the language of game production and game economics and changed the paradigm. Trip Hawkins, when he was creating electronic arts, he was pulling from the ideas of the record industry, of the music industry. The idea that you have a record label, the record label sends out A&R people to go and find acts. Once they find those acts, they polish them, they hone them, they give them the tools they need to be the best versions of themselves through the intercession of a producer. Then they release that product and take most of the money and give the act what little leavings remain. You know, there's this kind of record industry system of the record label, the producer, and the talent. Trip Hawkins thought that this is the way that this should be done. There shouldn't be these random submissions or the random, oh, this game's kind of good, maybe make this tweak or that and we'll sell it and here's some royalties. He felt that you needed a real systematized way of going about this to really make any kind of money in it. He was an MBA. His friends were MBAs. Most of the early employees of EA were MBAs. They were coming at it from a business perspective that the early entrepreneurs weren't necessarily. These weren't business school people, even though some of them did own businesses. He comes up with this idea of the producer system. Now, Activision is coming up with it at about the same time. It's really 
a photo finish between which did it first, because the founding CEO of Activision, Jim Levy, who joined with the Atari programmers to found the company, he came out of the record business. He knew the record business. He understood the record business. They didn't have producers when they were first starting. At the same time EA was coming up with the producer system, Activision was basically creating the studio system, and this was also kind of based on a music industry kind of paradigm, though it was also kind of a motion picture industry kind of paradigm, too. The idea that you had a publisher at the top, and they had a home office, then you had in-house talent. He's coming at it from a different direction from Trip Hawkins, because in computer games, the paradigm was already well-established that much of the talent was outside talent, and so he was coming up with an external talent model. Jim Levy, because they already had internal programmers, which was the console company model, was coming up with a studio system with the idea of there is talent all over the country. We don't want talent in other parts of the country to necessarily have to come to where we are in Mountain View, California, to be part of this company. We can find talented pockets of people all over the country and support them as a satellite studio of our main studio in Mountain View. In order to keep track of what's going on at these far-flung places, Activision comes up with the producer model, again taken from the record industry, at about the same time that Electronic Arts does. These two companies between them, Activision and EA, shape the future of how computer game software and ultimately, as the industries merge more, video game software in general are going to look like. So to run those things down briefly, this is what you're looking at. You're looking at a publisher as being the head of the dragon, the organization that is making sure that product gets finished, gets to retail, and gets to take a good chunk of the money. This publisher is going to have studios all around the country, all around the world, that are feeding them internal product. They are also going to go out and find talented individuals, or later on as game development gets more complex, independent studios that can give us product as well that we will publish. All of these different projects are going to be overseen by producers. Producers will take on the traditional project management role that you already see in the tech industry in terms of managing budgets and schedules and all of that. But they will also take on a big-picture creative role. Even if the producer is not a creator in and of himself, he will be involved and have input in everything that's going on in every aspect of game design. He will make sure departments are talking to each other, people are talking to each other, and he may also offer suggestions or advice or feedback on aspects of the creative process. He will help you sharpen your methods. These games that are being created instead of being submitted fully formed like was often happening in the computer game industry before this, rather than these games being submitted fully done or nearly done, as was the practice in the past, what we'll do is we will get a game idea from you, we will learn about your game, and then we will sign you to a contract to make that game. In this contract, we will give you an advance on royalties, similar to the record industry or the book industry, publishing industry, then we will give you further money, further resources based on meeting milestones. Then when the game is all done, if you're an outside developer, then you'll get a royalty rate. EA is entirely outside developers at the beginning, unlike Activision. So in the EA model, then at the end, 
you get more royalty based on how the product sold. So this is pretty much the entire formulation of how video game development still exists today. There's push and pull between whether a product is done internally or externally. Basically, over time, there's been a move to do product development internally because as projects get bigger and more complex, they're harder to keep an eye on, and it's always easier to keep an eye on something happening in-house than something that's happening in someone else's place of business. So there's been a gradual move over time to bring almost everything inside in AAA development. There's very little external development anymore. But in the beginning, there was more of a mix. That's really still how the business works today. You pitch a game idea, you get your game idea greenlit, you establish milestones, you get paid based on meeting those milestones, then you get whatever profit participation you get at the end of the product. A producer is the person that's overseeing all of that. That's still what they do today. Team sizes are bigger, team roles are more diverse, but that basic model still exists. That was really being formed by Electronic Arts and Activision primarily in this period of time. In terms of the games, you know, there was a transition basically to more graphically intensive stuff is the big thing that's going on. As computers get more sophisticated, can have more memory, you can have more impressive graphics, text adventures give way to the interactive cartoons of your King's Quest and that kind of thing. You get military simulations that are getting more and more sophisticated, even experimenting somewhat with polygonal graphics as they grow in sophistication. You get RPGs. Wizardry was black and white. Bard's Tale comes along in 85, does the same thing in full color. Might and Magic comes along the next year and does the same thing in even more impressive full color. You've got this move towards these kind of more sophisticated, more graphically sophisticated games that are still based more on strategy, puzzle solving than they are on action, with the big genres being adventure games, puzzle solving, inventory management, parser, because we're still in the parser era, we'll get out of it, RPGs, which are mostly in the Ultima tile-based graphics mode or the wizardry first-person mode then military simulations and civilian simulations in the sense that Flight Simulator is also very big, but most of them are simulating military craft rather than civilian. Or fictional military craft. Sure. So that finally brings us back to consoles. Yay, consoles! It's a myth to say that the console industry completely died after 1982. There were new releases in 83, 84. ColecoVision stayed on the market till 85, but... It really was a dead market, and it's because there was a glut of product in the channel. Too much product was made and distributed in 1982, and the after-effects of that were felt all the way into 1985. In other parts of the world, you didn't have that problem. In Europe, though, they were perfectly happy by this time to stick with their game computers. The ZX Spectrum, and then, of course, the Commodore 64 comes along that is the uh, successor to the VIC-20, that also becomes a big part of the European markets. Japan is just starting to move into this whole console thing. They're starting to move into it as much as anything because they can see that the coin-op industry is not going to be as sustainable in the future. Even before the law is passed in 1984, they can see the writing on the wall. They can see that the coin-op gravy train is not going to last forever. This is why Nintendo is already a toy company and already has good contacts within that industry. And Sega, which is an arcade powerhouse, but is now turning its attention to the home, are going to shift their focus to that home market. 
But most of the industry is really thinking in terms of computers still. It's that same thing that you see happening in the United States some, too, where there's always this thought that there's going to be the singularity. Consoles and home computers are going to merge. It happened in the late 70s. It happened again somewhat in the early 80s. And there would be other times where people would question whether it was all just going to go computer as well. In Japan, the same thing was happening. If you look at most of the products that were coming out, you did have Epoch with their Cassette Vision, which was more of a video game console. But that was essentially just taking their individual dedicated systems that they'd had success with before and kind of smooshing them together into something interchangeable. So it's kind of an outlier. If you look at the other Japanese toy companies and electronics companies, they're all going the computer route. Tomy and Takara, two toy companies, come out with these computer console kind of hybrids. Of course, several companies are getting in on the MSX standard. I know someone's been waiting for me to say those three words here. M-S-X. 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 Which was seen as something that could be a universal computing standard, but that also straddled the line somewhat between a computing platform and a game-playing platform. So that's where a lot of the electronics industry was going. The toy companies were going in this direction. And Sega was going in this direction because what they were working on first was their SC3000 computer. It was really only Nintendo, and kind of Epoch, but it's kind of weird, that saw that the best thing to do to penetrate this market was really to create the cheapest game-playing system that they possibly could that could still present a decent level of graphical and gameplay capability. And that's exactly what he told Masuhiro Yamura to do, the person in charge of creating the system, is strip out all that stuff. Don't worry about keyboards, disk drives, anything like that. He did allow him to put a little add-on, a little port on the bottom of the system so that if they wanted to build out more complex stuff later, they could. The goal was to just do a streamlined video game system as you possibly could. Nintendo at this point was already big in electronic games because their Game & Watch series had been fabulously successful in Japan, pretty successful in Europe and parts of Europe as well, not as much in the United States. So they already had good relations with distributors, uh, with the Shoshinkai, which was a retailer organization that controlled a lot of the distribution into toy and electronic stores in Japan. They knew they had an in. Uemura used the ColecoVision as his model. Now, the internals are completely different, different processor, different graphics chip. But the ColecoVision, which had its life tragically cut short by this crash, was the first time where consoles were starting to approach arcade-quality graphics. Now, with Moore's Law, arcade graphics very quickly leapfrogged the home again. But this was the first time that there was some closeness there. So he used the ColecoVision as a base just in terms of what he wanted to achieve. Of course, the Game & Watch had introduced the D-pad. So they brought the D-pad over to the NES, which completely changed the way the console games were played, all for the better. Then they put together as near-arcade perfect versions of their biggest arcade hits that they could. Of course, the big one being Donkey Kong, which we've remarkably not talked about yet. But Wait, I thought we talked about Donkey Kong at least a few times. In this recording, Jim. Oh, important key fact there, kids. <laughs> and released that on the market, and they were able to undercut most of the competition on price. 
those that they couldn't undercut on price, they overdid on quality. So they were able to create a dominant position and really start to set a new uh, standard. We'll get back to them in a second. So you have the Famicom coming out in Japan in 83. This is the launch, the start of the Famicom boom in Japan between 83 and 86. The Famicom is extremely popular. It does extremely well. It makes lots of money. An entire ecosystem is built around servicing that system. Nintendo had not been planning to have third parties involved when they started, but Namco, just like Sega and Nintendo, could see the writing on the wall that the coin-op was going to decline a bit in the coming years. But rather than create their own system, they decided to reverse-engineer the Famicom and create versions of their coin-op hits for the system. They basically did that, then went to Yamauchi to ask for a license, and Yamauchi gave them one, and that was the beginning of third-party development. Uh, I mean, technically, Hudson kind of had to deal with them before that, but that was special because that was kind of a quid pro quo thing where they were making a basic cartridge, and so, yeah, I guess you can release some games. Namco was kind of the real start of actively coming up with a third-party licensing program. This was a whole paradigm shift towards sophisticated video games in the home. It was very much a Japanese-led revolution. Then, of course, after they started this with the very simple games that they had in the beginning, like single-screen platformers and primitive racing games, they start really embracing the ability of console to host more complex concepts. You see that in a few different ways. Of course, Super Mario Brothers is really a good example of that, and we do have to mention it because it sets a new paradigm. We haven't talked about the platformer yet in this thing. Platformers started almost as a means of convenience, I think. As graphics got sophisticated enough to represent human characters, people wanted to put human representations into games because that's, you know, there's value in that. It creates a sense of connection. You connect with a character in a way you don't necessarily connect with a tank or a race car. Unless it's that outrun Ferrari Testarossa, man. There's value in putting a character in, but in the confines of a single-screen arcade video game, coin-op video game, which is what you had at the time, because of memory limitations, you basically just had single-screen action, you couldn't do very much interesting with a character without creating a dimension of height in that setting. A tank you can drive around overhead all over the place, and that's fine because a tank looks good from up above. A human is just a dot from up above, so that's no good. A spaceship from a side view, you can have like asteroids where it zooms around the whole screen, and that's great. It stretches believability a little bit if we have our humans flying around the screen. You can't really do that. I mean, you could give them a jetpack, but other than that, not really. What about that tie-in Superman game? Yes, well, yes, he does fly. But that's not a platform. It could be like the Nintendo 64 Superman where he flies through wings. If you get nothing else out of this podcast of this huge long screen, take this with you. Don't ever be like the Superman in that N64 game. (laughs) Hmm. So, you know, I think platforms came about as just a necessary convenience. We want to represent humans, and we can't do much on a single screen, so let's introduce verticality. Of course, after platforms came jumping, and we've talked about that. Mario has a barrel coming for him. If you have a barrel coming towards you and you have no left or right to get out of the way, what do you do? You jump. That was Miyamoto's thought process. You got platforms. You got jumping. You had games now starting to be able to scroll and being able to do longer and more inclusive worlds. So the next step was to kind of bring that together 
and create something that was a culmination of everything Nintendo had learned about creating video games. Super Mario Brothers was meant to be a send-off for the cartridge format because Nintendo was going to uh, the Famicom Disk System. They were going to go to Disk Media because you could put more on it for less money. Then they discovered you could also pirate games in a disc format, and then they kind of soured on it. Oops. They thought that Super Mario Brothers was going to be the send-off, so this was the grand do-everything-we-have-ever-figured-out-how-to-do. You know, it takes different ideas from Donkey Kong and Donkey Kong Jr. in terms of the types of platforms and springboards and all of this going on. It was going to have side-scrolling shooter portions that were finally cut out of it, but at one point it was going to have those. It had floating around in the water using, you know, motions that are very similar to flapping around in balloon fight or something. Every mode of how they figured out how to manipulate a human character, they were going to bring all into one impressive game. And of course, instead of being the end of the beginning, it ended up being the beginning of something very new and the new dominant paradigm in what was going on in console games. While the arcades still preferred beat-em-ups and shoot-em-ups and whatnot for various technical reasons, the platformer with mascot character became the standard mode of operation in console video games. That's, of course, another legacy of Nintendo. Of course, the other thing that really drives sales in Japan is the creation of the JRPG. We did a whole episode on that, so we are not going to dwell on that either. Basically, you had the early Ultimas and Wizardries infiltrating Japan, primarily through import, export, and trade companies, coming in just getting a basic translation job and stuck on shelves. From there, you had a small number of technophiles get a hold of them and create proto-RPGs on computer platforms in Japan, which we don't have time to go into a huge amount on because there's too much stuff, but we did a whole episode on that, and I actually think our early Japanese computer game episode is a quite good one, so were well served on that topic already, I think. You've got these proto-Ultima games coming in. You've got move towards slightly more action-based gameplay on top of that to try to make them more palatable to the Japanese audience. And then from there, you, of course, get Yuji Horii at Enix deciding to combine Ultima and Wizardry, then simplify and make it more accessible for console players and you get the birth of JRPG and Dragon Quest, which really drives sales. After 1986, the Famicom really declined in Japan. Sales were on a downward trend most years. One year where sales trickled up a little bit again compared to the year before was 1988. And I'm almost positive, even though I can't prove it, that that is solely because that's when Dragon Quest Three was released. And it single-handedly tipped the scales in the other direction. Sold nearly 4 million copies. Popular game. They had so many people lining up for it on release day that they had to pass a law saying the Dragon Quest games couldn't come out on school days or work days anymore. You have the run and jump action game, you have the JRPG, and then of course you have the adventure game, which again kind of comes out of the D&D experience and comes out of the arcade again because you had Masanobu Indo doing Tower of Druaga as a coin-operated game. Tower of Draga, which was kind of his interpretation of the D&D experience for a coin-op system. Obviously, you have to keep it kind of action-based, and you can't keep it very statistical-based because coin-op is all about Twitch gameplay. It was his take on the D&D idea of you're exploring a space, you're slaying enemies, and you're gathering treasures. 
Druaga very clearly serves as something of a base when Miyamoto and Tezuka at Nintendo are working on their first Famicom disk system product and they're thinking to themselves, what would make a good disk game? They decide building your own dungeons and sharing them with your friends, taking advantage of that rewritable media would be a great thing. They basically kind of take a Druaga aesthetic. I'm not saying it was their only influence, but I think it had to be one and applied it to kind of a build your own Druaga kind of game. Then they decided because Miyamoto loved exploration, loved exploring the wilderness when he was a child, they decided, well, why don't we just have dungeons and then an overworld and do it that way? And so, of course, you get Legend of Zelda. These kind of three paradigms, the run and jump platform game, the console adventure game, and the JRPG shape the next two generations, really, of console games along with imports from the arcade like shoot-em-ups and beat-em-ups supplementing that. Nintendo, of course, brings the Famicom to the U.S. as the Nintendo Entertainment System test launch in 85, general launch before the end of 86. The real change here, of course, from the broader perspective is the market fell apart before because there was no way to stop anyone who wanted to from releasing games on the Atari 2600, which led to a glut of product, too many products, too much manufacturing of product. Nintendo came up with ways to limit that, some of which are still in use today. There's a lockout chip on the system. Only authorized games can be played. For the most part, we know there's exceptions. We don't have time for exceptions. You pay a royalty for the privilege of being on the platform. You have to adhere to basic content and quality standards that the platform holder lays out for you in order to publish on the platform. Then everybody makes money together. Those parts of the Nintendo system are used on console platforms today. Nintendo, of course, was even more restrictive than that because they did all the cartridge manufacturing themselves. They required certain exclusivity deals for content appearing on their consoles, and they were especially extra restrictive on what type of content could be in a game. So they were very controlling, but it really was the type of control that was needed at that moment. They had to crack down really hard in order to kind of establish the norms of what a video game console industry is going to look like. Over time, as they were investigated by various government organizations and faced more competition from other companies, they relaxed some of those more draconian restrictions that they had, which also was for the best because some of them really were too tough. The NES era sometimes, I think, gets looked at these days as being more of a negative than a positive. From an economic perspective, I think it was a necessity, even though if it was a little bit harsh, it gave the industry a chance to actually... Cement itself? Cement itself, exactly. Part of those draconian restrictions combined with the massive success of the NES in the United States, and it was massively successful did create a lot of pushback into Nintendo's practices and video games in general. The toy industry hated Nintendo. So I should say, because I meant to mention this, another impact of Nintendo coming in and rebooting things is they really refocused on the core. 6 to 12-year-olds, 6 to 14-year-olds were the people that were playing console games even before the crash, and especially boys more than girls for a lot of societal, structural reasons. Nintendo decided, okay, they were marketing consoles for everybody before. They were trying to build a broad base of everybody. We're trying to bring this back from nothing. We can't do it that way. We are going to focus on that core demographic. We are going to market to 6- to 12-year-old boys. 
That isn't to say that they never tried to get girls interested or that there were never girl game movements. There were attempts, especially after the NES was more established in the 89-90 period, to try to expand the market into other areas, but they really refocused the demographic. We're still kind of feeling the effects of that today. Slowly but surely, the demographics are widening and becoming more inclusive. Certainly, there's a type of game out there for almost anybody today. The kind of focus of the AAA experience on action and on these male-dominated things, I do think a lot of it goes back to the fact that Nintendo set that as the baseline. Everything else to come after that is a growth or a riff or an expansion off of that baseline. They also very deliberately were in the toy industry. Nintendo Entertainment System was a toy. There was no video game industry yet. Nintendo systems were carried in consumer electronic outlets as well, but it was very much a toy, and the traditional toy industry hated them with a passion because video game sales were cutting into their sales and no American companies were really involved. Those companies that had been involved a lot of American toy companies involved before the crash, Milton Bradley, Parker Brothers, Mattel, Coleco. After the crash, all of those American companies were wiped out of it. I mean, Coleco and Mattel both almost went bankrupt. Video games were radioactive. Milton Bradley and Parker Brothers were weakened enough that they were purchased by other companies. It was bad. So the traditional toy industry hated Nintendo, hated video games, wished video games would go away, quite frankly, because they were cutting into their profits. This also led to Japan bashing because it was all Japanese companies. Japan had beaten us in steel. They'd beaten us in cars. Now they're beating us in electronics and video games. So that led to a lot of resentment. Of course, that, along with the draconian practices, also led to a lot of investigations and lawsuits pertaining to their activities. All of this is to say that while Nintendo was popular and Nintendo was dominant, Nintendo was definitely vulnerable. There was an opening there for another company to come in and take part of their market if that company could figure out a hook to get in. Of course, the reborn Atari Corporation and Sega both tried to do so in the 80s, but they really couldn't. They really couldn't make any headway. Nintendo was weakened enough by these attacks by the beginning of the 90s that there really was an opening for Sega. There's a lot of emphasis put on what Sega did to be successful. And they did some things to be successful. We shouldn't ignore that success. They did decide that if Nintendo has a stranglehold on the 6 to 12 market, then we'll take the teenage market. We'll create content that is a little more mature, a little more violent, a little more, for lack of a better word, grown up. We'll take a demographic that Nintendo doesn't have. And then once we have the teen demographic... Because of that phenomenon we talked about before, the idea that the younger kids want to emulate the older kids will naturally grab that younger audience once we have that teen audience. The other thing, of course, they did is they realized that there was a shift in the way children and the way teenagers were being marketed to and experiencing the world. By this time, you definitely have a kind of MTV generation. MTV, of course, came along in the early 80s, and it changed the way for a long period of time that music was interacted with and consumed with all the music videos. It also changed the way that visual media was done because there was this emphasis on quick cuts 
edginess and jitteriness, packaging something in really small bites, so to speak. Sega's marketing techniques, you know, people put a lot of emphasis on how they were quote-unquote edgy and how they had the Sega scream and all of that. That's true. I mean, that was very helpful to them. I do think that it's in large part because MTV and that kind of culture was kind of conditioning the youth of America to respond to that kind of advertising more meaningfully than what Nintendo was doing. Nintendo was kind of following the traditional movie industry paradigm of advertising, which is treat your games as the star, treat them as blockbusters, and then have a marketing campaign based around a game that's kind of a more traditional trailery approach to the game. Whereas Sega was going for an MTV kind of approach of quick cuts and jitteriness and edginess, that won the day with the teenager of early 1990s America. Of course, that also triggered a long period of continuing to harden the console game base around the idea of the young male, for good or ill. I'm not turning this into a soapbox. These are the kinds of things that are worth pointing out because you had to keep pushing more and more extremes. The original Sega Scream stuff wasn't really that extreme, but then companies had to keep topping themselves and topping themselves in new ads, and it got more into gross-out humor, it got more into teenage boy kind of stuff, and it got more alienating to anyone who is, is not part of that cohort. I'm not just talking about women. I mean, I look back today at some of the ads from the late 90s, and it's like, I cannot believe these were video game ads. That is so tasteless. That's the bad takeaway. So Sega did a lot of things right, but the other thing that we have to remember is that Nintendo, by being too draconian, kind of left an opening. There was an eagerness, almost, for someone else to come along and dethrone Nintendo. They were restrictive with their third parties. They gave distributors and retailers the runaround all the time. It was not always a good time, and people couldn't break with Nintendo right away. Walmart very famously refused to carry the Sega Genesis for a long time because they were afraid of Nintendo. But Sega was also allowed to have the success that it did by an industry apparatus that was just ready for a change. Competition was needed in the console industry. The other thing that competition brought, of course, is a new degree of sophistication in the release and marketing of games. This is the period of time where we get the idea of actual street dates for games. In the past, both because in the pre-computerized era, coordinating shipping and release of product across the entire country and the entire world was very difficult, and because the logistics of it were incredibly difficult to do even under the best of circumstances, games didn't really have street dates back in the day. You just kind of had, this is kind of the period we're shooting for and we're shipping product out. Maybe this retailer puts it out earlier, this retailer gets it late, or maybe this part of the country gets it first because they're closer to the distribution hub than this part of the country does. It was kind of haphazard. The 16-bit era really changed that with both Sega itself doing its Sonic Tuesday promotion, where Sonic the Hedgehog 2 came out basically... At the same time, everywhere in the world, Japan decided to be different. And then, of course, Acclaim took that to the whole next level when they had the Mortal Kombat license, and they did good old Mortal Monday, where they simultaneously released Mortal Kombat across four platforms, even the Game Boy, for some reason. 
at the exact same time on the exact same day and had a massive advertising campaign. Mortal Kombat! I certainly remember that commercial as from being a kid. What we're seeing here is we're seeing healthy competition. We're seeing just enough restrictions to create a viable industry. I mean, Nintendo on its own went too far, but when Sega comes in, it balances out. You see a move towards sophisticated distribution and marketing. You see reliable street dates. You see big marketing campaigns around the release of games. You see some hardening into a core demographic and a hardening into a certain kind of content that isn't necessarily palatable to everybody, but plays really well to a growing base. You see the move to mascot platformers being the most important thing around. Sega, very famously, of course, isn't starting to make a lot of headway against Nintendo until they have Sonic and they can show a different kind of mascot platformer that is speedier and edgier and plays more to that arcade-going audience that Sega knows very well and is now trying to pull into the home. That concludes Episode 3. Next time, we conclude our four-part series on the entire video game industry. We will see you next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the things that we discussed in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's Video Game History blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies that Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworld. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. 